Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Pensions Experts' fortnightly podcast. Uh, in normal times, the news that Pension B had written to the pensions minister accusing various pensions providers of exploiting regulatory loopholes to obstruct legitimate transfers would likely have dominated our section of the news media for at least a week. But since these are not normal times, shortly after this complaint was lodged, the pensions minister himself became the 51st MP to jump from the rapidly sinking ship that was the government. And so it goes. That itself had significant pensions implications, but now things have calmed down and we've returned to something like a comfortable level of dysfunction. We thought we'd take this opportunity to ventilate both of these issues and give them the time they deserve. So we'll begin by exploring pension fees accusations and testing some of the counter arguments. Then we'll move on to the fallout from the resignation that in the event wasn't. And our final topic for this episode will deal with auto-enrollment and the news from a Nest Insight conference that a third of employers apparently don't quite understand it still. If they'd rent pensions expert, and I'm obliged to point out that it is free and worth your time, they would know the current conversation is whether the minimum rate should be raised to 12% just to secure an adequate standard of retirement, and they would not be laboring under the delusion that 3% is what the government recommends. But more on that in due course. I'm Benjamin Mercer, senior reporter of Pensions Expert, and I'm joined today by Romy Savova, founder and CEO of Pension B, and by Pete Hyken, co-founder of Penfold. Thank you both very much for joining me. We will kick off, um, and since we have Romy with us, I think the first story pretty much picks itself. Uh, Pension B announced on July the 4th that it had reported a number of providers to the DWP for unnecessarily delaying transfers, something we must point out the providers deny. Uh, they cited problems with Pension B's refer a friend scheme, arguing that it's an incentive and regulations require it to be flagged. Uh, the Department for Work and Pensions and the Pensions Regulator attempted to clarify the intent behind the regulations, but the providers and a few lawyers have argued instead that intent does not trump the law. Romy, I think, well, if you agree that that's a fair summary of where we are at the moment, I might get you to start by restating your case, if that's right. I know you've had to do it a few times in, in recent days. So what is the evidence that these providers specifically are delaying transfers or exploiting these regulatory loopholes to do so? And, and why would you argue they're doing that? Well, I think there are many parts of your question, but let's let's take a step back and look at the overall environment for transfers over the past couple of years. Um, so as you will know, transfers is something that I personally am very passionate about, having attempted to transfer my pension and having ultimately played the middle person for um, many months and then picking a option that overcharged me and ultimately underperformed. So You'll have to excuse me if I do get a little bit passionate um, during the podcast. But transfers generally over the past couple of years have been slipping and transfer times have been slipping. When we assess the publicly available data from Origo's quarterly transfer index, we found that pension transfer times had increased um, by about 45%. And so there is a general backdrop of reduced levels of customer service and certainly a general malaise in the transfer times that we are seeing across the industry generally. So I think it's fair to say, based on the data overall, that transfer times have not been a priority for many pension providers. Now, as you know, we, we did receive new legislation around scams towards the end of last year. And that legislation has been incredibly important because intends to enable 
trustees and pension providers to stop transfers to what they believe are scams. And so this is very much needed legislation that enables us to protect consumers. The intention and the scope of the legislation has been laid out to the industry on many, many occasions um, and has been well understood to act and to need to be applied in cases where trustees generally think there is a risk to the customer of being scammed from a pension transfer and, and therefore the legislation is a good thing. However, since the legislation was implemented, what we have noticed is a handful of pension providers, generally on the master trust side, applying the regulation in ways that it was not intended. So the regulation has a very specific clause that says that a transfer where an incentive has been present can be red flagged and therefore stopped. Now, the legislation itself has not defined incentive in a very precise way, but has given examples of what may constitute an incentive. And that will include factors such as early pension release, substantial amounts of you know, the, the pension going back into the hands of the customer in ways that are contrary to the, to the legislation that currently exists around when pensions can be accessed, and generally behavior that is not considered market standard uh, within the pensions industry overall. Now, a handful of pension providers have stated that because an incentive is not defined, it could also potentially include uh, very market standard practices such as refer friend schemes or very market standard cashbacks. And the, the problem with this argument is that if you take incentive at its natural meaning, um, which is something that encourages someone to do something, then incentive could also be an excellent app. It could also be excellent customer service. It could also be fee discounts. It could also be anything, really, anything that encourages you to do something. The fact that you want to take control of your pensions. I mean, that sounds like, you know, that could incentivize me. And so the way that the legislation is therefore being applied by a handful of trustees is quite inconsistent with the intent um, that was well understood by the industry. It is inconsistent with market practice, given things like refer a friend schemes, apps, good customer service, etc., are present across the markets. And it is inconsistent with the way that the vast majority of the industry have interpreted this legislation. And therefore, it is very puzzling to see this type of behavior, but it becomes perhaps more explicable against the backdrop of lagging transfer times. And so I think that we were very justified in writing to the minister to bring this to, to his attention. And we were very pleased to see such a rapid response from the DWP and the pensions regulator to clearly state that any transfers that had previously gone through should go through unimpeded. And yet, I think that there is still resistance within the industry to, to accept that statement.
Sure thing. So I'll come back with a couple of the um, the potential responses, at least from the providers in question. But before I do that, Pete, I wonder if you want to come in with, with your perspective on this. I mean, do, do you broadly agree with what you've heard? How do you respond? I'm pleased you're going to come back with the um, rebuttals because I was hoping I wasn't brought on to do that because now I think I agree with almost everything Romy's saying. I think you could charitably decide that, you know, it's not malice and it's not trying to keep assets and that it is more to say incompetence but I guess it's you know it's it's risk aversion which I think a lot of these these businesses um, we're talking about are, are really known for and I think they're you know Romy's just laid out exactly why you know, there there is really no case for, for for the way that the way they're handling these transfers and then this this rebuttal I think is, is now coming back to that which is well okay fine but you know why do we need to rush these transfers anyway and I think that also, if this whole thing isn't about malice, I think that point gets to the heart of this as well, which is that a lot of these providers just aren't understanding their customers and they're not understanding what their customers want and why their customers want to move to a you know a provider like Pension B or Penfold where they can get a much quicker service, they can transfer quickly, they can get everything done digitally on an app. You know, I think it just it just shows a misunderstanding of their customers, which is partly why why they're in this situation. So one of the responses, as, as we were saying, that we might have heard, we did, in fact, hear from trustees, master trusts and, and all the rest, is that, um, well, the let, it's all very well to say the intent of the law is one thing, but they have a duty to their members. They also have a duty to their trustees and to themselves as, as corporate entities to apply the letter of the law. In other words, caution is the name of the game. It's all very well to say, well, we can interpret this more broadly and more laxly if we want to, but the law is unclear on this point especially in the case where the provider is a master trust and they have a significant membership base that they are representing, it would be irresponsible of them to interpret the incentive clause in particular loosely in case the law transpired to mean something else or in case it did in fact, in case it led them to take an action which in the fullness of time turned out to be unwise or imprudent. So their argument would be that the law has to change before they can change and master Mm -hmm. trusts might not necessarily be caught up in general industry best practice, given master trusts are in a unique position with how many members they are serving and how broadly they have to apply this legislation. So uh, again, there's a couple of different ones that you could pick out from in there. And Romy, if I'll come to you on, on that, if that's okay. Sure, sure. I mean, I have heard that argument. However, what that argument doesn't account for is is a couple of things. First and foremost, we are talking about a very small minority of pension providers that believe the law should be interpreted in that way. And the vast majority of pension providers do not believe that the law should be interpreted in in that way. And of course, I would struggle to believe that there are only a handful of prudent pension providers out there in the country. So I, I think we have to bear in mind sort of, you know, the context in which that defense has been made. I think that the second thing that has to be borne in mind is the weight of the words of one's regulator and the weight of the words of the department that prepared the legislation. And in both instances, I believe that the weight of the department and the weight of the regulator is exceptionally strong. We are rightly operating in a regulated industry, and and I think it's important to listen to what the regulator and the Department for Work and Pensions has to say. They have made their case clear and what they expect to see. So, you know, I I, I definitely think that that is a very relevant point here. 
And then the third relevant point that I will state is that when we look at the operation of transfers, what we have seen is the pensions ombudsman, and in, in this case, it's actually the FOSS um, rather than the pensions ombudsman per se, but the FOSS covering pensions, effectively determining that around 10 days is the right time with which to be making transfers. And so the, the enforcement that we've actually seen of what is appropriate transfer times is around 10 days. And of course, yesterday we had the news that a DC pension transfer had been completed in six days. So, so I think that, you know, when it comes to transfers, the public consumers and also enforcers rightly expect that customers' wishes to move their money should be honoured with a high priority. And I think that therefore, on balance, when one applies common sense and listens to what our regulators and our Department for Work and Pensions is saying, then one can surely understand why consumers should be prioritised along with their wishes. Well, on the subject of legislation, I suppose we can turn to the question as to who will be doing that and how it could get done. We remember, of course, that last week saw a number of government resignations, including Pensions Minister Guy Opperman. He wasn't the quickest to jump ship because nothing happens that quickly in pensions. He is the longest serving pensions minister. So it probably did come as a surprise that he had to make a decision without three consultations first. But um, eventually he did get to go. And that caused a bit of a panic in the industry. Lots of fretting about delays to regulations, legislations and reforms, for example, dashboards, single code of practice, defined benefit funding code and all the rest. They'd already been severally delayed and they could be delayed again. But then a few days later, Guy Alpenman was back. And I suppose there are two questions to sort of unpack with this one. The first was, has any damage been done? And the second is, where do we go from here? And um, Pete, I think I'll start with you on this, if that's all right. Obviously, there were concerns, especially around dashboards and the progress of dashboards, given how close we are to the deadline for that. It was only a few days in which the minister wasn't present. But of course, the the government's uh, inactivity recently is long lasting. Do you think that this is going to cause significant problems to longstanding pensions reforms? Or are we fairly safe for now? I think one of the interesting things this made me think was how probably lucky we've been as an industry that we've had such consistency in pensions ministers. Even before government, we've had kind of a long run of, of consistency, which I think has helped put through, you know, if, if you look at the amount of legislative change that's happened over the last sort of 10, 15 years, I think having long serving ministers has actually has helped some of that, you know, be pushed through for sure. You know, was it was it even three days that he was out of the role? I don't think that's going to have had any any meaningful difference um, or, or impact. But I think what's coming up with the with the leadership election and with you know a possible that could mean a huge change in, in any number of ministerial positions, and it would be a sh- real shame for the for the industry as a whole if you know if we went into a period of having lots of reshuffles or, or multiple different ministers with pensions oversight. I also thought it would be really great if any of the leadership contenders were talking about even not just pensions, but we're just talking generally about the savings crisis or inequality between young and old or any of these topics that are relevant to the industry. But I think it's unrealistic to expect that. So I think, you know, with a bit of luck, we'll keep we'll keep the continuity we've had. And perhaps possibly more interesting is to see who's going to end up um, as leader and what their sort of 
I guess, vision for the, the world of pensions will be to the extent they have one. And I think that's that's going to be very difficult given everything that's going on in the world, given given the cost of living crisis, things like that. It makes prioritising retirement saving harder. I think the all of the people running are, I think you broadly put them as sort of low tax, low regulation businesses, which I don't think spells anything particularly positive for some of the changes that need to happen with, with auto-enrolment, although you know, possibly there's some simplification of, reg- of regulation which they'll approve of and, and, and could happen. But I think it's a, a really interesting time and I think the leadership election will tell us a lot. Sure thing. And you mentioned, of course, it, it's more than just the pensions minister or other ministers with, with a bearing on this. And I think the, the Treasury would arguably be one. Of course, we've got the Deem Sahabi in at the moment. That's not to say that he'll be in after whoever wins the election wins the election. Is Am I right in thinking um, that auto-enrolment reform in particular has been a, a bit of a, a Treasury hurdle to overcome? I think that's something Steve Webb cited when he gave his sort of valedictory speech for Mr. Opperman. Is there any sign perhaps that now the Treasury has undergone a change in management, maybe something like auto-enrollment expansion might in fact speed up if those hurdles are removed? Or are we all going to be very, very busy with the rest of the cost of living crisis, do you think? I think, unfortunately, it's the latter. Yeah, I, I think the Treasury has a, a big hand in what, in what can happen here. And I think because of the economic impact of asking employers to pay more uh, and, and contribute more into employees' pensions and, and all the, the regulation that comes with that, I think you you really are going to need buy-in from everybody in the economic team at the at the treasury, and you you don't get the impression it's a priority for any of the candidates at the moment, um, and, and whoever their chances will be. But you know that's that's perhaps just it's not been talked about. I'm happy to to come in there there as well. I mean, I suppose just on on our pensions minister, I think that it is very rare to find a minister that is so committed and dedicated to the department and to pushing through the mounds of legislation that has been needed to corral an industry with so many participants. And, you know, I I sit on the government's pension dashboard steering group and, you know, that has been an enormous multi-year project that has been steered, I think, in a way that it must be steered given it is a government project. But I think continuity for that project is exceptionally important um, because we are so very close to the finish line. Um, and I have no doubt that the current minister, who I hope will stay our minister, is, is very much committed to that. And then just on, on automatic enrolment, while it may not be on the leading platforms for the current contender, I think it's a reality that if we want people to build up sizable pension pots that they can rely on in retirement, the contribution rates will will need to go up. And I think it's a matter of when in the 2020s, um, as, as opposed to if. And I would expect that once we have the current pension legislation that is really, I would say, on fire through the door, that that, that will be the government's next priority, because I think that the calls for it are coming loud and clear. I jump in there because I, I know that I was in front of a committee recently I'm pretty sure he quoted the date of 2031 as his new target for increasing AE minimums. I could be getting that wrong, but you know, I agree with everything you said. And it's the worry that the sort of, as you say, the cost of livings crisis might be pushing that back just slightly out of the 2020s, because it, you know, as you say, it needs to happen as as soon as possible. I said it would be interesting as a, as a way of spurring auto enrolment reform if ministerial pensions were actually defined contribution and auto enrolment minimum, and then we could see maybe how quickly those things might uh, change instead. We are talking about auto-enrolment then. That does bring us to the final topic uh, of the day. 
It's a decade old now. It is firmly established in law, but many employers apparently haven't quite managed to get to grips with it just yet. Uh, survey results at Nest Insights Conference revealed that a third of employers believe the 3% auto-enrollment minimum was in fact the government's recommended level, and 5% of employers apparently didn't know you could contribute any more than that. Um, there is a charitable interpretation, which is that these people are a little bit too busy to focus on auto-enrollment. The cynical way of putting it is that there is not much incentive for them to look to increase contribution rates, especially at the moment with the cost of living crisis and many pressures on the economy. But where it is simply a matter of ignorance, which I think is the problem for, for a third, apparently, what more can the industry do to tackle that, given you know it's been around for a decade and it seems we've all been championing it for a decade? Uh, what can we do to increase awareness? And, and Romy, I'll come to you first on this. I think what we can do to increase awareness amongst employers is to increase awareness actually amongst consumers, because it's ultimately consumers who benefit from the pension contributions. And we are increasingly living in a world where people are very focused on remuneration, potentially because of the cost of living crisis, but are generally very focused on transparency. So I think a lot of it comes down to to consumer awareness about pensions. Um, And of course, the pensions industry has a very important role to play in that. Excellent. And Pete, final word to you on this topic, if you like. I mean, I, I completely agree again. I think the secret here is to engaging employers is to engage employees. And I think the industry has an obligation to do that and do that so much better and I think it's a real area, you know, the industry stands out as behind so many other areas of financial services, but also every other sort of employee benefit. You know, pensions outside of salary are one of the most expensive employee benefits. And so the idea that employers don't want a better workplace pension for their staff, the idea they don't want um, something that's more engaging, they're paying 3% at least of their salary cost. They're paying that on top into a pension scheme. And they know that none of their staff appreciate it in the same way they appreciate their health insurance or any other benefit. You know, there is an opportunity there to do better and to treat pensions like any other employee benefit, bring it to life, put it on an app, make it more engaging. You know, there's so many obvious things that should be happening there. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's disappointing that the industry isn't, isn't doing that because that's exactly how you solve this. You engage the employees, you make it feel like a proper benefit and, and, and everyone wins. Excellent. Well, I think that brings us to the close of the uh, the principal part of the program, during the course of which I don't suppose an always a pensions angle has occurred to either of you? Yes. As a matter of fact, um, I do believe there is always a pensions angle. And I would love to come back to the law, if I may. I thought it would be interesting to check what are the top 22 weird UK laws that you might not be aware of. Um, And I'll pick just a couple of my favorites. One is flying a kite in a public place is technically illegal. It is also illegal to walk cows down the streets in daylight in England. And the final one is that it is illegal to shake your rug in the street. And so I thought, why not end with a couple of laws um, that we may not all be aware of, which... You know, I think we apply a lot of common sense to. I actually am aware because I love that list. My favourite one is that it is illegal to handle a salmon in suspicious circumstances, which uh, is very much open to interpretation, you might point out. But um, 
I think that does bring us to the close of the program in that case. Thank you both very much to Romy and to Pete for joining us. Thank you to our listeners for being with us. We'll be back again in two weeks' time, and we hope to see you then. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.